And thank you for listening to the history of World War II podcast, episode 284, The Fall of Java, part three. Last time, after the battles of Java Sea and Sunda Strait, the Japanese were clear to land their troops at various points on Java, the last major holdout of the Dutch East Indies. As we have seen, the western part of the island that held the capital, Batavia, was occupied by March 9th. As for the city of Bandung, on the far edge of the western half, roughly south of Eraten Waten, where the political and military allied leadership were stationed, that was about to go the same way. To be sure, the Japanese were losing more men than they had to, but at the moment, speed was more important than casualties. For by March 8th, Lieutenant General Hein Ter Porten, the overall Allied commander, was already sending out feelers for surrender. But Lieutenant General Hitoshi Imamura, the 16th Army's commander and the commander of this invasion, wanted the victory by force of arms. As for the invasion of Eastern Java, that would be carried out by the 48th Division, commanded by Major General Yuitsu Tsushi Hashi, who, it turned out, was an officer worth his salt. The 48th Division left Luzon Island in the Philippines on February 8th, but as the Battle of Java Sea held up the invasion for 24 hours, the Sakaguchi Detachment was able to join them. Despite the Allied fleet's best efforts, the 48th Division, in their numerous transport ships, were anchored off Kragan, located about 70 miles or 112 kilometers west of Surabaya, the major port city in the east, by 12.15 a.m. on March 1st. When planning his invasion, Major General Tsushi Hashi started out by using a simple technique, one that would pay huge dividends. He turned his map of Java upside down. Now the question was not how would he attack, but how would the enemy defend? With this gesture, it now seemed obvious. Whoever was defending the eastern half in this case, it was Dutch Major General Pierre A. Cox. He would certainly have a large force around Surabaya, the major port city, more specifically to the northwest of the city, as that would allow his force to be just north of the city, placing themselves in between the sea and the city. But by being here, they could also dash to the west, to Kragan, the other major port city, if they had to. Tsuchihashi would use this estimation against his foe. The planned invasion would indeed have a force go at Surabaya from the northwest, meeting his enemy's expectations, but this would be a feint. His main strength would, after landing at Kragan, head southeast and hit Surabaya from the south, a likely weak point in the city's defenses. Even better, if all went according to plan, the enemy troops in the city would then be cut off from any retreat to the south. They and Surabaya would be bottled up. When the 48th Division and the Sakaguchi Detachment landed, the 48th would, by prearrangement, break into four units, two main units and two raiding units. The Ima unit would be the right wing, the Abe unit the left wing, which left the Tanaka and Kitamura units to act as raiders, 
throwing off the enemy by being distractions. More specifically, having just come from the Philippines, Tsuchihashi felt that the battle at Bataan could have been over earlier than it was, had heavy artillery been brought to bear sooner in the battle. He would not make that mistake. As such, the Ima unit would land to the west of Kragan and make sure that any fleeing Allied troops from further west did not join up with the eastern forces, but also to secure the nearby Rambang Harbor, as that was where his heavy guns were going to make land. This left the Abe unit to land to the east of Kragan, thus allowing room and protection for the two raiding parties to land. The Tanaka raiding unit would dash to Seppu, less than halfway towards Surabaya, to take control of the oil fields there. Then they would continue on to the major port city itself. Together with the Imai and Aba units, the Tanaka would drive east and then southeast to hit Surabaya from the south. But for all the planning, nothing ever goes perfectly. Indeed, the 48th Division, on its way to Java from Balik Papan, Borneo, had been attacked several times by Allied bombers. From February 25th until reaching Java on March 1st, the convoy had been attacked by a Dutch flying boat, then two B-17s, then three Douglas A-24 Banshees, then a Wildebeest torpedo bomber, then an Albacore, then more Wildebeests then more B-17s, and finally one B-24. It was the Americans that claimed to have sunk seven transports, which would have most assuredly changed the face of the invasion of eastern Java had the claims been true. But no transports suffered anything other than minor damage. Put succinctly, the Americans were still on the low end of the learning curve of this new war. The Allied air power was back at 9 a.m. to harass the 48th Division on March 1st, but the majority of Tsushihashi's men were already heading inland. Still, the attacking bombers and fighters paid a heavy price for the little damage done to the now-empty vessels below. Back at 3.45 a.m., the right wing of Colonel Imai had gone ashore. At 4 a.m., the left wing of Major General Abe followed. As they moved inland, or south, they were met by the 3rd Cavalry Motorized Squadron of the 1st KNIL Cavalry Regiment, but they were easily pushed aside. By the evening of March 1st, the invaders had a beachhead of 50 kilometers, or 31 miles deep, and the majority of their equipment and ammunition was on shore. That night, Rambang Harbor just to the west of Kragan, was taken. Now Tsuchihashi's heavy artillery could come ashore. Again, not that everything went the invaders' way. As the lead elements of the Japanese reached Rembang Harbor, they were come upon by a reconnaissance group of three jeeps and one armored car. Before the Japanese unit knew what was happening, one reconnaissance group got to within 50 meters and opened up. The shooting did not stop until the Japanese unit was wiped out. Still, the Tanaka raiding unit was able to break out of the Allied blockade around it, such as it was, and by 6 p.m. on March 2nd, they had occupied Seppu, 
about 35 miles or 56 kilometers southeast of Kragan. That was the good news. The bad news was that the Dutch, before leaving, had wrecked the oil fields and the major bridge in the area. Undaunted, the Japanese commandeered small boats and began to cross the Solo River, and soon the next target town, Bojone Goro, along the main road, was taken. Though not moving as fast as Tsuchiyashi would like, the main body of the 48th Division was following hard upon the leading elements. Though their crossing of the Solo River took longer as Dutch resistance here firmed up after the Tanaka raiding unit had moved on. When they reached the riverbank at 10.30 p.m. on March 4th, they were met by the 6th Infantry Regiment and a Dutch Marine Battalion, but they were so few in number compared to the crossing enemy that the defenders were swamped by the tidal wave of enemy troops. This same scenario would play out over and over again as the main body of the Japanese 48th Division took towns and crossed rivers on their way to Surabaya. At one of the last towns before Surabaya was reached, a Dutch Marine described the action he saw. Note, the translation is not perfect. The cannon wagon was posted beside the road, just behind the bridge. We do not have to wait long, for at once the cannon commenced firing, a nice thundering sound to hear. But then every one of us was firing at the approaching Japanese infantry in a line, left and right from the road, through the paddy fields and bushes. It was an ear-deafening hell of firing all around. All that matters was now to keep calm when aiming and firing at your targets, and in that way I had the satisfaction to make some hits. But then the Japanese throwing at us with their mortar shells, aimed in the first place at our MGs, so we had to move every now and then. We realized then that they were not infiltrating patrols, but for sure at least a battalion, because they soon easily attacked us from the rear. In the meantime, our wagons were turned around at the road, and with firing to the left and right from the wagons, we broke through their line behind us just before they could put up a roadblock to stop us. In the center of the small town of Ganjok, we take positions again about 600 meters from our first line, and again hell broke loose, and now the seaplane made diving flights at us, but not firing his machine guns, because the confusional situation on the ground, with enemy and friendly troops fighting within short distances between houses and gardens. Again, we were surrounded by them, and now we had to walk beside our wagons in the breakthrough. As if defeat in the field wasn't bad enough for the Allied troops, they were, after all, outnumbered, and their air power by this point was practically useless. Then came a moment of soul-crushing humiliation, as if the universe itself was letting the defenders know it, too, was against them. As the Japanese were approaching Kertosono, about 20 miles or 32 kilometers west of Surabaya, the KNIL Infantry Battalion Rudenberg, under Lieutenant Colonel W.P. Rudenberg, had set to blow the bridge there. But after the explosion and the smoke cleared, the defenders' mouths gaped open at the scene before them. The bridge, obviously well built, only sank two feet. 
They were about to set up another charge, but by then the enemy was coming into view. The Dutch retreated as the now undelayed 48th Division began to cross the slightly lowered crossway. This seemed to break the camel's back. In the afternoon of March 6th, the invaders learned that Dutch forces were retreating pell-mell for Surabaya. Cohesion, or at least coordination, was breaking down for the defenders. Tsuchihashi, upon hearing this, ordered his four units to head straight for Surabaya and areas south of it to locate the enemy and destroy them. But by the evening of March 6th, the Abe unit had reached Perong, about 15 miles or 24 kilometers south of Surabaya. However, before them were two KNIL infantry battalions, part of the 3rd Cavalry Unit and some AA and the 6th AT gun unit. With the two forces facing each other, the defenders managed to blow the main bridge, yet other bridges nearby were captured by the Japanese. Their tanks rushed across. It was at this point that many of the native KNIL troops deserted. As it was the European Dutch troops who were manning the 47mm AT guns, they managed to take out three enemy tanks, but it was not enough. Now, more defending troops retreated back to Surabaya. However, the E-Field Artillery Battery of the American 131st Texas Field Artillery Regiment kept good order and continued to fire as they retreated. This caused an impressive amount of Japanese casualties, but the Americans would pay for this when they became prisoners. The defensive situation to the west of Surabaya was just as bad. As such, by the afternoon of March 7th, the Japanese troops were on the outskirts of the town. In reaction, Dutch Commander Major General J.A. Ilgen destroyed parts of Surabaya, gathered his men, and then crossed over to the nearby island of Madura. As for the continued defense of the town, that was left to the Home Guard, who weren't expected to do much. Meanwhile, Allied troops still not captured were starting to gather in the Le Majang district, located on the south coast to the southeast of Surabaya, which raises the question which comes at a certain point in all battles. With the various forces of East Java separating themselves, they were making the invaders' task easier. Then again, it's normally not a good idea to put all your defensive eggs in one basket, which leads to a tipping point in all battles. Tsuchihashi realized that moment had come. At 6 a.m. on March 8th, he ordered his units to prepare to attack Surabaya the next morning. However, knowing the enemy was weak and demoralized in the town, he also warned his men the attack might be moved up to that very evening. The Major General was more right than he knew. That same morning at 11 a.m. on March 8th, the Major General was told that a reconnaissance plane had spotted a Dutch soldier with a white flag south of town. Thirty minutes later, he was updated. That Dutch messenger, wearing a white flag, had just arrived at the 48th Front Line Unit headquarters. After terms were exchanged, the governor of East Java Province and other Dutch officials met with Suchiachi, 
These men were ready to surrender, but the general only wanted to know who could speak for the home guard, still defending the town. When the civilians made it clear they could not, Tsuchiyashi ordered his men to attack early that afternoon. By 6 p.m., Surabaya was occupied. With the situation hopeless in East Java, Major General Gustav Ilgin returned to Surabaya from the small island to the north and surrendered his forces in the afternoon of March 9th. By the 12th, the Dutch forces there had been disarmed and made POWs. The War of East Java was over. As for the overall commander, Lieutenant General Hein Ter Porten, his struggle ended in the south, courtesy of the Sakaguchi Detachment. The Sakaguchi made landfall on the night of March 1st with the 48th Detachment, but its plans, upon landing, was to break into several units and then leapfrog each other to the southwest towards Jalatjap, some 200 miles or 321 kilometers away as the Japanese knew the defenders would end up being pushed there. First, the Kaneja unit landed and went south about 10 miles to Blora to establish a beachhead. They took that town by 8 p.m. that same day, March 1st. The Yamamoto and Matsumoto units joined them at 2.30 a.m. on March 2nd. Altogether, these units were the majority of the Sakiguchi detachment. However, word reached these men that a Dutch force of some 600 soldiers were in their rear, roughly to the northwest. The Kaneji unit turned to engage this threat. Meanwhile, the Matsumoto unit left Plora at 12.30 a.m. on March 4th and went southwest to Surakarta. There, three Dutch infantry companies were waiting. But 24 hours later, just after midnight on March 4th through 5th, the Matsumoto unit attacked this latest city. The conditioning involved to being able to move for 24 hours straight, even on trucks, and then get up and fight was impressive, and this took the Dutch defenders by surprise. The Dutch defenders took out one tank with their AT gun and caused a pause with their machine guns but the attackers used their larger numbers to tie down and then circle around the Dutch. Sarakarta fell. This left the area to the left or west of Sarakarta open, which the Kaneji unit rushed at, leaving their latest conquest. They quickly took the town of Bojolali, 15 miles to the west of Sarakarta. The Japanese were now only 125 miles or 201 kilometers, from Jilajap. But even more incredible, as the Kaneji were not exhausted by their recent short fight, they raced another 35 miles, or 56 kilometers, to the southwest and forced a 700-man Dutch force to surrender after a short fight at Jogajarta. They were now 100 miles, or 160 kilometers, from Jilajap. With Jogajarta subdued, it was the turn of the Matsumoto unit to leap past the Kaneji unit and make for Malang, 30 miles or 48 kilometers northwest of Jogjakarta. The fighting here started in the afternoon of March 6th. Not that it was much of a fight. By 7.35 p.m., the town and military personnel there had surrendered. 
Yet, there were other Dutch units in the area, most importantly, between this leading Japanese unit and Jilichap. So the Dutch commander here, KNIL Colonel J.A. Fleischer, was convinced by the Japanese to order the surrounding troops to surrender. They did so. Now, the Yamamoto unit was up, but it would have the Kaneju unit with it, as it was ordered to go west along the southern coast towards Jilajab. They set out at 4.30 a.m. on March 6th, as the fighting that was about to take place at Malang was not expected to be serious. The two units pushed west and defeated or captured smaller Dutch units along the way, like the 100-troop force of the cavalry depot there. By that evening of the 6th, they had reached Kabomen, less than 50 miles, or 80 kilometers, from their goal. As can be imagined, Jilajap Harbor was a madhouse, with everyone wanting to escape to Australia. A British Lieutenant Colonel, M.D.S. Saunders, who may have had a score to settle with the Dutch, described the scene this way. The Dutch had overvalued their ability, on the land and at sea, to defend Java. Further, the Dutch did not think the British would be able to do much for them, as they were barely holding out in Europe. But at least they tolerated the Americans for the supplies they could offer the defenders. And this optimism, despite what had happened to other parts of the Dutch East Indies, remained until even after the Japanese landed on Java, except in one place, Badung, which just happened to be the seat designate of the government and the military headquarters. But after General Wavell left Java, the military brass and the diplomatic elites made a dash for Jilajap. Note, Despite the lieutenant colonel's statement, the brass stopped at Bandung. The main point is, many took their pessimism with them. Back to the Kaneji unit. When they reached the Sorojo River just outside Jilajap, they began to prepare pontoon rafts. This was around 8 p.m. on March 7th. At 12.40 p.m. the next day, March 8th, they crossed the river and Japanese troops began to enter the city. At 3 p.m., the Yamamoto unit rushed into the current capital, only to find that the approximately 2,000 Dutch and British troops still unaccounted for had dashed 15 miles to the north to Wangan. As for the British troops, when they reached Wangan, they located the man in charge, KNIL Lieutenant Colonel C.H. Stantius Muller, and offered themselves. But Muller said he would not ask them to fight. It was a hopeless situation anyway. Further, he had no orders to give them. It was best if they left to avoid capture. But another Dutch major general did have orders. The forces at Wangon were to surrender. So as the Kaneji and Yamamoto units were preparing to attack Wangon, a Dutch messenger with a few officers beside him, reached the Japanese camp at 1 p.m. on March 9th. The details were worked out, and on March 10th at 11.10 a.m., the forces at Wangon surrendered to Major General Sitsu Sakaguchi, commander of the Sakaguchi Detachment. 
After Lieutenant General Heintent Porten, the overall commander, left Batavia on March 5th, he made his way to Badung, about 50 miles or 80 kilometers to the southeast. Straight away, he held a meeting, saying that guerrilla warfare was impossible, as the locals hated the Dutch, thus would not help them, and in fact, would give away their positions to the Japanese. That Bandung had to be the last holdout for himself, but he was not expecting victory. And then the lieutenant general threw in a most unusual amendment. If at any time he surrendered and ordered all to put down their guns, they were not to do so, but to continue fighting. British Major General Sir Hervey Sitwell matched this by saying, as long as any Dutch troops were fighting, his men would continue to resist. That the Brits' last stand would take place in the hills to the southeast of Badung. As for the Australian Black Force, under Brigadier Arthur Blackburn, General Sitwell told him to move to the east of Bandung and prepare to act independently if the Dutch East Indies forces surrendered. Back on March 7th, the Japanese troops had arrived at Labang, about seven miles north of Bandung. Meanwhile, Black Force was to the south of Bandung, placing stores of food and ammo in hiding places should they need them later. The other reason for putting away supplies was in case some of the 8,000 Allied troops in the area needed to run south to seek evacuation. It must be said that many of these men were unarmed, as they had destroyed their weapons before coming this way south. With enemy troops to his north and west, at 9 a.m. on March 8th, General Ter Porten sent out a broadcast that said, all were to surrender. This was in response to the Japanese making it clear that if they had to fight their way into Badung, it would not go well for the survivors. Because of this announcement, though, the Japanese did not seek out and engage Black Force or any other units around Badung. So more time had just been bought, but what to do with it? Blackburn had spent the last few days also deciding what to do. He guarded the roads to the south should the people in Badung make a run for the coast, not that dozens of ships were waiting for them. During that time, Blackburn looked over the cards he was holding. The rainy season was coming, and his men were not trained or equipped to deal with that. Their medical resources were scarce, and there would be no air support, and his position was already practically surrounded. Still, it was not in his nature to quit when he was not beaten. But in the end, he would follow General Sitwell's lead. As Blackburn contemplated, General Sitwell was communicating with the Japanese. They were concerned about the Australians and believed that an entire Australian division was holed up in the nearby jungles and hills. During this lull, the last civilian aircraft took off, carrying a large consignment of diamonds. But it was shot down off the northeast coast of Australia. There were no survivors. The diamonds were never found. Getting irritated, the Japanese forces moved closer to Badong from the north and west. Then other invading forces left Batavia to join in 
this ever stronger ring around the last Dutch holdout. As such, later, on March 8th, that same day, Commander-in-Chief Allied Forces Lieutenant General Hein Terporten sent a second broadcast that all Dutch resistance was to end. The game Porten had been playing came to nothing. That afternoon, Allied Commander Ter Porten and the Governor-General of the Dutch East Indies and the Garrison Commander of Badong met Japanese Commander-in-Chief Lieutenant General Hitoshi Imamura and agreed to surrender all their troops of the Dutch East Indies. Vice Air Marshal Maltby and General Sitwell, seeing this, agreed to follow Ter Porten. So at 2.30 p.m. the next day, March 9th, the British, and thus the Australians and Americans, ended their resistance. Ironically, the only chance the Dutch or Allied troops had in continuing to resist was if they got the help of the locals. But it was made crystal clear to them that they would not lift a finger to help their oppressors. On March 12th, the senior British, Australian, and American commanders signed the formal instrument of surrender. Postscript. About 200 Allied soldiers ran for the hills, but by April of that year, they were captured. The POWs were put into three-foot-long bamboo pig baskets and driven to the coast, but half of them died during the journey from heat. The rest were taken out on boats and thrown into shark-infested waters, though still in their cages. After the war, Lieutenant General Imamura, the new governor of Java, was found guilty by an Australian military court and given ten years of imprisonment. The melee barrier, which was to protect Australia and the Indian Ocean, had been obliterated in just three months.